privilege to have fellowship with like-minded people. But most of all, we have the privilege to open your word. And inside it, we get to see that you are a God who has revealed yourself to us to where we can get to know who you are by you declaring yourself to us, by how we are to act. But most of all, Father, we can see your glory is made display because from that we know on how we should be walking to bring your name glory. And so, Father, we ask that your spirit can speak to each one of us as we praise your name in your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Sinclair Ferguson tells of an interesting book that he has read in which it was written in 1900 by a relatively unknown author whose name was Dr. E.A. Winship. The book was called Juke Edwards, J-U-K-E hyphen Edwards, a study in education and heredity. It compared two families and what their families produced. The name Jukes was actually a pseudonym to hide the identity of the guilty. And then the Edwards was the family of Jonathan Edwards. And so Max Juice was the person's name that was invented, and the book went into describing his family lineage. So for Max Jukes, in his family he had 310 professional paupers. 300 children who died in infancy due to the lack of care, 50 women who were described as notorious debauchery, 400 men who wrecked their bodies by abuse, 7 murderers, 60 habitual thieves, 130 criminals. And that was just the beginning. For Jonathan Edwards, he contrasted Max Juice's family by looking at his family. There were 100 ministers and missionaries, 13 college presidents, 65 university professors, 120 graduates of Yale alone, 100 lawyers, 30 judges, many state mayors and governors. But it wasn't all sunshine and roses in Jonathan Edwards' family. He had a vice president in his family, and his name was Aaron Burr. And he goes down into U.S. history by being the one that killed Alexander Hamilton in a duel in 1804. They were both political rivals, and they took their business in the back. And so that's how he was went down in history. So that was just the beginning of Jonathan Edwards' family. In his family, he also had another notorious figure. He had a great uncle who was an axe murderer. But throughout the book, comparing the two families, the author wanted to show within the book that one's actions in their life has lasting consequences. Not only in their life, but also in the people and their descendants thereafter. One's action doesn't just affect themselves. It affects a myriad of others around them. 
And so those consequences go far beyond that one person, and especially into many generations in the future. And so as we begin to look at our passage, we begin to see this reality on display, that a family can have family characteristics that are passed down because of the upbringing that they had and the actions that they have seen coming from other people. And so how one lives their lives has a distinct ramification for those who come after you. Or to put it another way, our sin has its consequences. So if you have your Bible this morning, please open it up to Genesis chapter 49. If you don't have your own Bible, there's a pew Bible right in front of you. You can turn to page 39 in, in that. Because I want you to be looking at these verses. In, in Genesis chapter 49, it is one of those chapters in the Bible that if you're reading through the Bible in a year and you get to Genesis chapter 49, you'll be inclined to just sort of fly right over it. Because there we're going to have a list of names. And so generally when we are sort of reading through the Bible, we're trying to find those gold nuggets that are easy to find. And we know in Genesis chapter 50, there are a number of different gold nuggets that are right there at the surface of things. But I had a dilemma as I come to Genesis chapter 49, yearning to get to chapter 50. Should I just skip right over it because it's just a list of names? Should I sort of look at one specific portion of things or should I sort of go through and try to make sense of what is going on? I'm going to be reading Genesis chapter 49 in its entire entirety for you in a moment, and you'll see why I have a dilemma. But essentially, we're in the midst of the story of Joseph. As we have been saying all along since the beginning of his story, the life of Joseph isn't really about the story of Joseph. The story of Joseph is about a story of God working providentially in Jacob's family to eventually place Judah into preeminence in that family. And so the story about Joseph is to tell the Hebrew people that God is always at work. He is providentially, sovereignly at work in the life of his people to bring about re the redemption plans that he has for his people to the next step. So in the life of Joseph, God wants to bring Judah into preeminence. And we will clearly see this in Genesis chapter 49. Because through Joseph's stories, God is using the sin of his brothers, the sending of Joseph into slavery, the coming into a place of power under Pharaoh, and then him stockpiling seven years' worth of food because of an oncoming severe famine, the bringing of his entire family to Egypt so they would not starve, all for the preservation of the promised line that was to come through the line of Judah. And so Joseph's story, as we've been saying all along, is God's providential work in the lives of his people. So as chapter 49 begins to open, that we're going to be beginning to look at, Jacob is about to die. He is on his deathbed. 
he has the last few moments of his life left. And so he's, he's been on his deathbed since the beginning of chapter 48. And during this time, he has been mustering his entire physical strength to speak to his sons before he passes. And so Genesis chapter 49 are the last words that the patriarch Jacob will be speaking. And he speaks these words to his sons. And so to begin to understand what will be, will be transpiring within chapter 49, there are seven things that I want you to know about this chapter before we begin to dive in. The first of all, you need to be reminded of the blessing of the firstborn. That is key in your understanding of what will be transpiring. The blessing of the firstborn was to be made to one of the sons, and it was composed of two portions. There was a double blessing portion to where the son who was going to be selected would, would receive twice the blessing from the father than the other sons. And then there was the portion of preeminence. And so usually the, uh, the firstborn blessing went to one person. And so as we shall see, this doesn't take place here. Reuben dishonored the family and Jacob by acting immoral with his father's concubine. And so he is not going to be receiving the firstborn blessing. So God is going to move within Jacob's heart to bypass Reuben, to bypass Simeon and Levite. And to do this, he's going to divide the firstborn blessing into two parts. The first portion, as we saw last time in Genesis chapter 48, the double portion blessing he gives to Joseph, his favorite son. He wants to elevate his love with Rachel by giving it to one of her offspring. And so Jacob does not do this for his own personal agenda. But by the breaking of the firstborn blessing, it's going to have a significant spiritual aspect about it. Because God wants to accomplish something through his people, and Jacob is going to divide the, first, uh, the firstborn blessing. And so Joseph receives the double blessing, and he gives it to Joseph, but it's going to be through adopting, as we saw last time, Manasseh and Ephraim. Joseph's two sons will, will become actual sons of Jacob to where they will inherit a land in the promised land and be just an equal of, of a tribe as the other's brothers. And so Joseph gets two lands for the price of one. And so that's what we looked at last time. But yet there is a portion of preeminence. And this is what we're going to be seeing in chapter 49. Jacob does not give this portion of preeminence to Joseph. There is a bigger picture that is taking place. And so as this chapter begins to open, the question with all the brothers is who is going to get the preeminence? Who is going to be the leader of the family? Who will be the next patriarch to be in charge of the family? If Joseph didn't receive it, who will? But yet there's a second thing that you need to know about this passage. I want you to um, quickly look at the passage and see that this is a listing of Jacob's sons. 
We have the sons of Leah mentioned first, and the son of Bilhah then mentioned, and the sons of Zilpah, and the sons of Rachel. And so the question arises, who among these 12 people, essentially 11, because since Joseph didn't get it already, who will receive the preeminence of the family? And so it's a listing of the family members. The third thing that you need to know about this is that the meaning of the sons' names are significant. Because throughout this, many of the sons, with the blessing that they are going to be receiving, either corresponds to the meaning of their name, or it's a contrast of the meaning of their name. And so you need to know that as we begin to look at this passage, some of which are a play on words. It's going to be the opposite of their names. Some, it's going to be an exact correspondence to what their name actually means. Fourthly, you need to know, as we begin to look at this passage, that this is a passage of imagery that is being used. We have, as we will see in a moment, different kinds of animals being described and plants and objects which are going to correspond either to a character trait of the sun or have some other meaning that is is going to be brought out for each one of the sons. They're symbols that have meaning to it. And so you need to begin to understand what the imagery sort of corresponds to. But fifthly, as we look at this, sort of building off of that one aspect, this is a prophetic passage. This is a passage of prophecy that looks ahead, that looks forward down the corridor of time to be fulfilled. Things don't always deal with the here and now with with his sons, but it looks into the future sometimes as many as 1,700 years in the future, and sometimes things haven't even taken place as of yet. And so this is a passage of prophecy. And so when it comes to interpretation of this, we have to take that into consideration. Because so far, as we've seen in Joseph's life, it's a historical narrative. It's a story of events. This happened, and this happened, and this happened. But we don't have that here. We have a prophetic aspect to where there are symbols. They represent things. You have to decipher what God is speaking through Jacob to get an understanding. And so that is is why as this chapter begins to open, we see that it's prophetic. Because how do we know? Maybe it's just a description of things. Well, if you begin to look at verse 2, as he gathers his sons together, we find this significant aspect of the usage of Jacob's two names. We find gathered together in here, O sons of Jacob. So Jacob is saying that, so he he doesn't say my sons. So there's a larger meaning with the lack of the pronoun there of my, but the sons of Jacob listen to Israel, your father. And so there's the usage of Jacob's name in which he was born with, the deceiver, and the name that God gives him to be the representative for the nation of his people, to where the nation will be called after him, Israel. And so within this passage, God is fulfilling the covenant. There are God's promises that he has made to his people going to be described here. So he tells his sons, listen, sons of Jacob, And listen, God's people, this is about 
the covenant. And so we have seen this in the life of Jacob so far, that when Jacob is walking close to God, we find Israel, being his name being used. Times in which he's far away from God and not walking correctly and not living correctly, we find his name being Jacob. And so you need to understand that this is prophetic, and we see it in the opening aspects. But sixthly, as we begin to look at the opening of this passage, you need to know that with prophecy... There are many layers of fulfillment. Some will have a direct implication right now. Others, some will get partially filled in the future. Some a little after that, and some they have not taken place yet. There are layers of fulfillment. And so you need to have an understanding of that. And so especially when we look at the preeminence of Judah... They will partly get fulfilled with the preeminence of King David, who will come from the line of Judah. But ultimately, there's a future fulfillment with King Jesus. And so as the blessings begin to be told to the family, there are many layers that are implied. And then lastly, in number seven, this is a passage in which the main focus will be on the preeminence of Judah. I can't wait to get there. When we get there, it's a great passage. But we will see that next time, whenever the next time will be. But that's okay. But I want you to look at the text. I want to read this text in its entirety so you get a feeling of when you were there or if you were there and feeling hearing these things in its entirety. And so look at verse 1. And we're going to go to the end. We find this, then Jacob summoned his sons and said, assemble yourselves that I may tell you what will befall you in the days to come. Gather together and hear, O sons of Jacob, and listen to Israel, your father. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might and the beginning of my strength preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power, uncontrolled as water. You shall not have preeminence because you went up to your father's bed and you defiled it and went up to my couch. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Their swords are implements of violence. Let my soul not enter into their counsel. Let not my glory be united with their assembly, because in their anger they slew men, and in their self-will they lamed oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will dispense them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down to you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He couches and lies down as a lion. And as a lion, who dares rouse him up? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. He ties his foal to the vine, and his donkey's colt 
to the choice vine. He washes his garments in wine and his robes in the blood of grapes. His eyes are dull from wine and his teeth white from milk. Zebulon will dwell at the seashore and he shall be a haven for ships and his flank shall be toward Sidon. Ishakar is a strong donkey lying down between the sheepfolds. And when he saw that a resting place was good and that the land was pleasant, he bowed his shoulders to bear burdens and became a slave at forced labor. Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent in the way, a horned snake in the path that bites the horse's heel so that his rider may fall backwards. For your salvation I wait, O Lord. Add for Gath, raiders shall raid him, but he shall raid at their heels. As for Asher, his food shall be rich, and he will yield royal dainties. Naphali is a doe let loose. He gives beautiful words. Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a spring. Its branches run over a wall. The archers barely attack him and shoot at him and harass him. But his bow will remain firm, and his arms were agile from the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel, from the God of your Father who helps you, and by the Almighty who blesses you with blessings from heaven above, blessings from the deep that lies beneath, blessings from the, uh, from the breast and of the womb, blessings from your Father have surpassed the blessings of my ancestors. Up to the utmost bound of the everlasting hills, may they be on the head of Joseph and on the crown of the head of the one distinguished among his brothers. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. In the morning he devours the prey, and in the evening he divides the spoil. All these are the twelve tribes of Israel. This is what their father has said to them when he blessed them. He blessed them, everyone with a blessing appropriate to him. Now you begin to understand slightly of my dilemma. Do I, do I just jump to chapter 50? Or try to decipher what is going on here? Because it's easy just to sort of skip it. But I decided that whenever I proclaim the word, that you need to have an understanding of the verses that we cover when you leave. So that is my en en endeavor. So continue to pray for me as we begin to open, open this up. But there's two things I need to say here as we begin to unfold what is going on. At first glance, you may be saying to yourself, after hearing what we, what we just saw, that doesn't really sound too much like a blessing. It's sort of almost like an anti-blessing. It sounds like more of a curse. And because some of those things are a little dark, and I would say, yes, yes, they are. But if you have to uh, remember, this is a prophetic aspect to where the description being told to them looks beyond them. Because of their actions, um, it is going to be having its consequence. 
And so Jacob here is speaking as a prophet, and he's going to tell the nation of each tribe what the future will be like for them. And so why is this a blessing, you may say? Well, it's because these are statements of blessing, because even though many of them, they have a very dark aspect to it, Jacob never disowns them. And that's key. And so this is a picture of God's unconditional blessing that He gives to His people despite the actions in which they do because He gives them the opportunity to always turn to Him. Because blessing, as we've seen downstairs during Sunday school, blessing is always equated to God's people being obedient, not to earn in appreciation before God, but it's an outflow of a person's heart. I want to be obedient so I can please God. And there's a difference. And God never disowns His people. So even though throughout the history of Israel they've been rebellious and unbelieving, they've never, He has never disowned them. So as we come to chapter 49, in this very long introduction, this is essentially a 12-point sermon. And I have to tell you, we're not doing all 12 points today. We'll see how far I can actually get. But I've been biting at the bit to look at Judah. That's the gold nugget. That's the aspect of the passage that stands out. The preeminence and the result of that, of Judah. Next time. But we have to go through the grocery list. So we're going to be looking at this morning starting with Leah's son. And as this chapter begins to unfold, it seems like the order that he goes to is probably the order in which they're around him. Because normally they correspond to, the, to their mother except one. But we're going to first look at the sons of Leah, Reuben. He opens up in verses 3 and 4. And we're going to see through Reuben that he is the shameful son. And so verse 3 opens up with this way, with the first son. Will he be the preeminent one? And so Reuben, Jacob says, you are my firstborn. Now, immediately, if you're ever a parent, there's something special about the first one. They're all special. They all have a, a special part in one's heart. But there's always something special about the first one, because in front of your eyes with the first one is actually a picture of the next generation. It's there. When you are young, you always imagine, what would my, uh, my children be like? And so there is a, something special with the firstborn, and he acknowledges it. Reuben, you are my firstborn. And normally with the firstborn, you're going to get the firstborn blessing, that double inheritance, that aspect of preeminence to be leader over the next generation of the family. And so we've seen this in the Old Testament. That baton, that firstborn um, aspect was passed on from Abraham. It was given to Isaac. Then it was given to, to Jacob. And I'm sure with a family member, there must have been in the back of their mind that Reuben, because he is firstborn, would be receiving that aspect of preeminence. And so his entire life was geared to be receiving this preeminence. 
The same thing happened with Prince Charles right now, that his entire life was sort of being groomed to becoming king of England. And so Reuben was being groomed to become leader of the family. But in the next verse, we will see how Jacob was actually viewing his son early on. He goes on to say, my might in the beginning of my strength, preeminence in dignity and preeminence in power. Jacob is saying, Reuben, you're my first one. You were the one who was my pride and my joy. You were the one that made me strong. You were the one that was becoming groomed to be the preeminent ones over the other brothers. And so there was a distinction with Reuben. That word dignity means exaltation. Preeminence in exaltation and preeminence in authority. That's the word power there. And so, Reuben, you had highest place of honor within the family. And so, I'm sure at this time, as Reuben is beginning to hear these words, he begins to say, I got it. Something positive coming from my father. But within the same breath, we find verse 4. Jacob then begins to describe Reuben's character, who he actually was. Verse 4 Reuben, you're uncontrolled as water. You shall not have preeminence. And I'm sure those words stung his ear. Uncontrolled as water. The imagery here being used is, is the word, is the aspect of water. You're uncontrolled. You're unstable. You're boiling over. You're reckless. He's saying your lusts are just boiling over. Reuben, you're like that. You're uncontrollable. With water, unless it's a solid with ice, you can't just grab it. It just falls through your hands and disappears through your fingers. And that is you, Reuben. You're undisciplined. You have unrestrained passions. You want what you want, no matter what anyone else may think. And then in the next part of the verse, he finds out the why. Why did he get, not get, preeminence in the family? And Jacob tells him, because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it and went up to my couch. He's looking back. He's looking back at Genesis chapter 35 in verse, in verse 22. He's looking back that your actions has consequences. And they can have severe consequences. Your sin, your choice, has severe consequences. Back in Genesis chapter uh, 35, we find the picture to where Reuben tries to usurp his father's place by sleeping with his father's concubine, Bilhah. Bilhah was actually the mother of some of his brothers. She was off limits just by normal morality. But this was a highly shameful act. Not only will Reuben not be the preeminent one, but the implication is here that neither will your descendants have any preeminence. Sin has its consequences. This one act of sin that he does makes him disqualified from preeminence. And when you begin to look at the rest of the Old Testament, 
on what happened to the tribe of Reuben. Not one person is mentioned in the entire Old Testament that had ever rose to any kind of national prominence in the nation of Israel in the promised land. There are no prophets, no judges, no kings would arise out of the tribe of Reuben. Throughout its, its entire history, whether or not it was the united kingdom or the divided kingdom, no one there rose to in any kind of preeminence because of this one act, not even one. And so there are times in which our sin not only affects ourselves, but it, it can affect others around us. And though God can forgive us of our sin, the results of our action can remain. And because of that, that should be a deterrent. My choices that I do, that I know I willingly do to, and disobey God, should deter me because my actions may affect others around me. Because its consequences can be devastating, so much so and far more than what I can ever think. Same thing happened with Moses. When God told Moses to speak to the rock, and instead of obeying God, he willfully hit the rock with his staff, just like he did before, but he disobeyed God, and God did not let him, him into the promised land. must have been devastating for him, that little action. But it was still a source of disobedience coming from a leader in, in front of the people. How holy is God? He wants to have um, our obedience. Because any sin is, is an offense before a holy God. But yet God was gracious. And before he died, he took him up to the mountaintop, showed him the land. There it is. And so it must have brought joy to his heart, but also a little bit of bitterness, knowing that he couldn't step into the land. And so though we may be forgiven for our sin, there can be still consequences that take place. So we see that in the life of Reuben. Will he be preeminent? No, he will not. So then we go to Leah's second and third sons. They're both listed together. So in some ways, it's only an 11-point sermon because we have two, two sons together. But what we find here in verses, uh, uh, these, these two sons beginning in verse 5, Simeon and Levi, I call them the violent two sons. Simeon and Levi in verse 5 are brothers. And so now since Reuben didn't get preeminence, they're thinking maybe I'm next in line to be preeminent. Either Simeon or Levi, 50-50 chance, things are looking good. But if you notice in this statement, there's no pronoun you being used here. He's addressing the entire group. Simeon and Levi are brothers. And then he immediately goes into a description of their character. Their swords are implements of violence. The imagery there is one of a sword. A sword is a deadly instrument of warfare. There, there is no compliment here because of it. They're implements of violence, extreme violence. That word their violence means wrongdoing or cruelty. 
It, it is looking back at their actions of what had taken place in, in Genesis chapter 34, where both Simeon and Levi, they seek revenge against Shechem, who forced himself on their sister Diana. And so Shechem, because of his action and his great love for, for, for Dinah, wants to legitimize their relationship and seek her hand in marriage. So his father goes before Joseph and the other brothers to negotiate terms for them to marry her. Simeon and Levi steer the conversation um, away just from one aspect, to have all the males in their family to get circumcised so that they can be able to enter into um, a right position in their family. And so they say, yes, we will do that. And then the word goes out to the other people living in the land that Jacob's family was honorable. But you know the rest of the story. Three days later, Simeon and Levi take it upon themselves and have a mass, a violent massacre. They're mass murderers. They go in and kill all the men while they were in their weakened state for what they had done to their sister. They weren't being honorable. They were being violent. They kill everyone, and it brings dishonor to Jacob and his family. It shamed Jacob because Jacob gave his word that nothing would happen to them, that they would be able to marry if they were circumcised, but it only brought disgrace on him and the entire family because he was the leader of the family. And Simeon and Levi take it upon themselves. And now God is going to hold them accountable for their extreme act of violence. But not only were they violent, they were cruel. Look at verse 6. We find this. Let my soul, meaning Jacob's soul, let my soul not enter into their counsel, Simeon and Levi's counsel, in their discussions for anything. Let not my glory be united in their assembly. Jacob is saying, I want nothing to do with you when you get together to talk plain, to talk about their plan. I want nothing to do with your counsel. Why? Look at the next part of the verse. Because in their anger, that word anger could also be translated as rage, they were so full of rage, they slew men, and not only that, and in their self-will, they lamed oxen. This was more than just revenge. They wanted their, um, their uppance. And so out of their out-of-control anger, they murdered, but they also took it out on their livestock, so their livestock could only stand there just waiting to die. That's cruel. And so then we get the pronouncement on the two sons in verse 7. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, it's mighty, it's overpowering, and their wrath is cruel. Sin is going to have its consequence. What is his consequence? I will disperse them in Jacob, referring to the nation of Israel. Uh, I will disperse them and scatter them in Israel. So the pronouncement is looking into future generations, and their actions are going to affect their descendants. 400 years later, when Joshua leads the people into the promised land, 
the nation is divided up into 12 areas, into the 12 tribes. And if you notice, if you, if you go through jo- um, Joshua chapter 19, the tribe of Simeon and the tribe of Levi do not get any land. S- uh, Simeon actually becomes the smallest tribe within Judah. They actually receive cities in the tribe of Judah. So they have a place to dwell, but they're not dwelling together. They don't have self-rule. They're just there and scattered out in a number of different cities. And so we get to see that with Simeon, they have no land. They're scattered. Same thing happened with Levi. They received no land. They're scattered between 48 cities throughout the entire nation of Israel, but they don't receive their own land. So we begin to understand the seriousness of sin and how God sees sin. But yet as the rest of the Old Testament begins to unfold, there is a hidden blessing that's not mentioned here, especially for Levi. Levi has a hidden blessing. They become the priests for the nation of Israel. They become, through God's grace, to uh, those who lead the people in worship. And it is through the tribe of Levi, they get some of the gems. Moses, he's a Levi. Aaron, he's a Levi. Eli, he's a Levi. Ezra, he's a Levi. John the Baptist is a Levi. And so the role will be of prominence will go on to someone else. And so they are the ones to where prominence is not received. And so we can look at the next one. The next son mentioned in the, in the list of Genesis 49 is Judah. Judah's going to get his own message. And so we'll, we'll come back to him. Jump down to verse 13. The next son who is mentioned here is Zebulon. He is going to be the appointed son. There's a prophecy on where the tribe of Zebulon is going to live. Matter of fact, as these verses begin to unfold, he's the only one who is told of a specific area in the land in which he's going to occupy. And that specific area is key to God blessing him. And so this is prophetic to a certain place that's going to transpire almost 500 years from Zebulon's life on when they enter into the promised land. And do you know how each tribe gets gets their place in the promised land? They draw lots. And so God is sovereign over that. And so the prophecy is here on where he's going to go, and God's going to bring that about through the drawing of lots. So as... Zebulon's life begins to unfold here in his blessing, we will see that God is sovereign and in control of history of not only his life and his descendants' life, but your life. If he can do the difficult things here, he's in control of all all the things that happens in our own life. I want you to look at, before we look at his life, in Acts chapter 17 for a moment just to underscore this one aspect. In Acts chapter 17, we find Paul. He's preaching the gospel. 
And he brings this aspect about the sovereign God being in control of every event in human history. Acts 17 in verse 26 talks about he, but as God. God, verse 26, made from one man every nation of mankind to live. Talks about the reality of, of Adam and Eve in the early chapters of Genesis, that it was a reality. It wasn't just symbolic. But that's free. From one man, every nation of mankind to live in all the face of the earth, having determined, here it comes, the appointed times and boundaries of their habitation. Paul is underscoring the fact that God is not only constantly at work, but he's micromanaging all of the events that take place around the world. So the events in Ukraine, God, God knew exactly what was going to be taking place. The tragedy in Pennsylvania, he knew what was going to be taking place. Nothing is outside of his will. He knows what happens in, in, in the world because he was the one who ordained those things. So if he can manage the events of human history without any effort at all, our feeble lives will be a piece of cake for him. So we can trust him, depend on him, even when times get difficult. But look at verse, uh, go back to uh, Genesis 49, verse 13. Zebulon, and here's the prophetic aspect that's going to be taking place almost 500 years in the future. Zebulon will dwell at the seashore. The seashore here refers to the Mediterranean Sea. And the literal reading here is a little clearer because that's not exactly clear. The literal reading is will dwell toward the, she the seashore. I was going to be having a little picture on, on where it actually is, but I ran out of time, which is my life story, but that's all right. But if you were to look at the map in the back of your Bible and look at the tribe of Zebulon, it's not exactly connected to the coast. It's about 10 miles inland to the coast. The, the, the land of Asher is between the coast and the border of Zebulon. So what's going on here? Well, um, in Asher at the coast, it was a major sea, seafaring port. But the goods didn't stay in Asher. The goods from the ports there were transported to the land of Zebulon. That was the hub of trade. That was the hub of commerce. And so that was the, uh, the business district for export and import of trade. And so it was a place of great wealth, of great commerce. The trade routes would go through Zebulon to bring in other goods and, and to take those goods out. And so Jacob is saying to his son Zebulon that in the future... They will be dwelling in a land that had a prime location, and they would be very prosperous because of it. Look at the next part of the verse. And he shall be a haven for ships. Ships will, will come in and go out. And yet, look at the next part. It's not all peaches and cream. His flank shall be towards Sidon. The word flanked refers to Zebulun's descendants. But the key there is Sidon. It's a Phoenician seaport. It's just north of Zebulun. And this is a danger. 
Because throughout Israel's history, the Phoenicians were notorious against Israel. It was an avenue in which false teaching and false beliefs would sort of enter in. And God, God tells through Jacob that Zebulon not only was exactly where they were to live and how prosperous they were going to be, but there was a warning. And one of the, no, the most notorious people to come out of Sidon was Queen Jezebel, King Ahab's wife. She came from Sidon. And so God is telling Zebulon, I am going to bless you. You are going to be a hub. It will dem- demonstrate my goodness that God has towards his people. And he places people exactly in the place where he wants them to be. And that's a comfort for me. And that should be a comfort to you. Many times within our life, we yearn to be somewhere else, doing something else with someone else. But there are times to where we have to realize God places us in the exact place at the same time where He wants us to be. And so you may not like where you are, but we have to be reminded God has put us here for right now. And when we even begin to look at the the larger picture, you should have a great appreciation that we live in the country of America to have the freedoms that we do despite seeing things being taken away. But we currently have the freedom to worship without fear of going to jail. We have the freedom to find a biblical church and become a part of it. You can go down to the local Walmart, I would say Christian bookstore, but there are none around, and buy a Bible and have it whenever you want to. That's unheard of in most of human history because they didn't have it, but you just can't do it like today in Russia or in some Muslim countries. You have the privilege of being around other believers to encourage and to be there with you and help you in your growth in the Lord. We have the ability to share our faith without fear of being openly reported and thrown into prison. You have the ability to listen to great messages, people other than me, on YouTube. And with the Shepherds Conference coming up, it's going to be a good time. But you have that privilege Many people around the world do not have that privilege today. And so God has placed us where we are right now in the 21st century for a reason. Because God is sovereign. He is in control because He has ordained it. And we are greatly blessed. And so we could be somewhere else. God may have placed us in some forsaken country all by ourselves to where we're the only believer within hundreds of miles, as some people are today. But we have to realize that no matter where we happen to find ourselves, God is there. He is in control. We can trust Him because if He was dependable in the past, He will continue to be dependable and trustworthy in the future. And we see that in Zebulun's life. There isn't really a sting there as much as some of the others, but he wanted to underscore the blessing that he will give them. The next one in verse 14 is the last son of Leah, where we'll pick up next time.
because I, I go through Dan. I have like eight more pages, but that's okay. But with those things in mind, as we begin to prepare to come to the table, we begin to see the importance of why we partake. When we come to the table, it is a time of great examination to see as we examine our lives whether or not we are worthy to partake. And so there's, there's a time to where we, we look at, at ourselves. But knowing that if we are a true follower of, of Christ, we can come and to ask for forgiveness of our sin. Every morning is a brand new morning where we can start afresh and start new. To say, Lord, take those elements that where I fall short and I willfully sin, take them out, work in my heart so that I can please you. And so when we confess our sin, turn from those sins and, and yield to, to the Lord, He is there to work. So it doesn't matter what has happened yesterday. What matters is how you walk with Him right now. And so it's a time of great exam, ex examination. And even for some who might be hearing this, whether or not you're here or whether or not it's through the internet, maybe you're not even of faith. Because like with the nation of Israel, as we've been seeing in Sunday school, it was so easy for them. And we're going to be seeing this in some of the other sons' life. It was so easy for them to look like true believers, and yet they are not. They didn't see that they were naked and poor. They didn't see that, that they were resting on their prosperity. But yet at the same time, they needed to come to faith in the living God for what Christ had done. Because Judah is going to become preeminent. And through that is, is the person and work of Jesus Christ. He has given us the ability to have our sin in our shame, forgiven, because we cannot come to God on our own. We can come because of what Christ had done. He was our substitute. He died in my place, because someone has to die for your sin. Either you're going to pay for your sin, or Christ had paid, well, had paid for your sin, excuse me. And so that was taking place at the cross. And so if you do not know what will happen to you if you were to die today? Turn to Him. Let this be the day of your salvation because you turn to Him, turn from your sin, and you turn to Christ. But also, one last thing as we come to the table, table's a celebration. Table's a time to rejoice. When we look at what Christ had done for us and as we begin to enter into the, um, into the Easter season, it's a time to where God did take on human flesh in the form of the second person of the Trinity. He came to live among sinful men to fulfill the law. He became our Passover lamb. And his shed blood cleanses us from all unrighteousness. And that's a celebration. And, and that celebration is ongoing. Every single day, if we're yearning for Christ to work in, in our hearts with the power of the Spirit, we become more and more like him. And so it's a celebration on what God has done at salvation, on what he continues to do, and one day we will be look, uh, just like Christ because we will see him 
for as he is. So we're going to have the men come forward as we begin to examine the elements of communion. So let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity that we have to look into your word. And we get to see that through all the doom and gloom and darkness of the son's life, because for the most part, we don't have a record, an exact record of how they lived. We just know that as things are, as things are described here, they were far away from you. But because of you working in the lives of Joseph and then through, through Jacob and then through Judah, you brought about family unity. You brought about a united uh, nation for them. And so, Father, we thank you that you are a God who takes us from being lost and dead in our sin and you give us the ability to become alive, alive to bring you worship and honor and glory. So thank you that we can celebrate that at the table. We pray this in Jesus' name.